As the tally of fraud and abuse in pandemic relief spending mounts, the Government Accountability Office has a reminder. Program managers have a list of leading practices for preventing fraud. The question becomes, why didn't they use it? Federal Drive host Tom Temin got more from the GAO's Director of Forensic Audits, Rebecca Shea. I guess at this point, it's fair to say we still don't really know the extent of fraudulent and improper payments under the various pandemic relief programs, do we? What's the latest sense of how bad it is? Yeah, that's true. We will never know the true extent of the fraud. But we do have some estimates at this point and some other information. For example, GAO recently released a report estimating the amount of fraud in the unemployment insurance program, and we estimated that the fraud that occurred in that program was between 100 and $135 billion. The SBA OIG has also estimated fraud in the two lead programs there, PPP and IDLE programs, and they estimate about $200 billion in fraud. And those are just two of the largest programs. And we've also been tracking some of the DOJ cases since the pandemic began. That also gives you a little bit of a sense of the scope of the problem. And at this point, there are nearly 1,400 guilty pleas or convictions and uh, about 600 more in the pipeline. And of course, many, many more under investigation at this point. I can remember when the entire federal budget was $200 billion. And this is how much we (laughs) threw away on that. But it's fair to say, too, that these were bigger than normal programs, but the rate or percentage of fraud in these cases is beyond banned for what we normally expect in programs. Yeah, that is definitely true. You know, just to give you a sense of the scope, the PPP and IDLE, the SBA programs and unemployment insurance programs, they were about $2 trillion collectively. That's a very attractive target to fraudsters, obviously. But you're right about the fact that the fraud that occurred in the pandemic is worse than what you would expect in normal operations. And and that's true for a variety of reasons. There are a number of known risk factors for fraud and the pandemic programs. They had them all. Some of them are new programs. Some of them were greatly increased funding, you know, with the um, nearly $2 trillion there. The agencies had to make quick disbursements, and they also had limited controls. Most important among those limited controls was the reliance on self-certification to determine if you get a benefit. So absolutely a much greater fraud in those programs than you would expect in normal operations because of those risk factors. Because just given the practicalities of the programs, even normally they're pretty big, a certain amount of fraud is to be expected, but it can cost you more to stop it than you would prevent. So in general, there's a risk management or inverted pyramid type of approach to this, fair to say? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I'm glad you mentioned that because it's important to realize fraud is inevitable. Anytime you have something of value, people are going to try to get it through misrepresentation. But the important thing is to manage the risk of that strategically because it's pennies on the dollar when you try to recover them. So prevention is absolutely the goal here. And I guess you've told us why fraud was worse in these programs because of these factors present, the newness of them, the great expansion of existing programs, and the limited controls. And that's because I guess they wanted to get everything up and running fast. And unlike the relief for the financial crisis back in 2008 and nine, at least there was an apparatus set up before some of that money started flowing out. Yeah, that's right. A couple of other things were going on as well. So agencies were not prepared and not managing their fraud risk strategically prior to the pandemic. The CG 
the Comptroller General testified earlier this year that had agencies been in a better place on that, since the requirements to do that came out in 2016, they would have been better prepared to handle the pandemic. So that's one of the reasons why they weren't very well prepared. And then, as you say, the other issue of trying to get the funds out quickly and making some determinations about the controls that would or would not be in place, uh, as it's been described, lowering the guardrails. And then, again, as you mentioned, there was not that apparatus in place for the government-wide oversight analytic capability that got stood up the initial year of the pandemic and it is going to sunset again, like the one for the, the financial crisis did, unless Congress acts to make that permanent. We're speaking with Rebecca Shea. She's director of forensic audits at the Government Accountability Office. And you testified that GAO for many years has had a reference framework for fraud prevention, some best practices or good practices for this. What are some of those? And I guess, why don't agencies use them more? First of all, tell us more about the framework. Sure. Yeah. It's um, our fraud risk framework, and it outlines 38 leading practices for strategically managing fraud risk. And it's broken down into four different components. And they align with you know broad themes that agencies should be covering to, man- to strategically manage the fraud risk. The first component relates to creating a culture and a structure to combat fraud. You want to have the right environment. You want to have the right organization to be able to do the things that you need to do throughout the year, regardless of your environment, normal operations or emergency. The second component relates to fraud risk assessments. Many agencies still are operating without comprehensive fraud risk assessment. They aren't even aware of their risks and understanding what controls they have in place to address those risks. So a full review of what your risks are, what you have in place to manage them, the likelihood and impact, and then also what's your tolerance for risk and will that change and how does it need to change when you're in normal operations versus steady state? And then what are the consequences of that? The third component relates to the implementing the controls that you need, implementing your fraud profile that you have developed from your fraud risk assessment. And then the last component is to evaluate and adapt that. Fraud does not stay static, right? It continues to change. The risk environment changes. So you want to make sure that the controls that you've figured you need from your fraud risk assessment are actually working as you want them to and evaluate and adapt that. Then go around in the circle. We Our visual for the fraud risk framework is a circle, and it's meant to imply that this is an ongoing process. Right. So there's really two takes that I get from what you've said. One is that if you are already oriented and sensitive to and have programs in place and think about fraud prevention, then when something big comes along, like a new program, you're already at a baseline where you can maybe scale more easily to protect yourself. That is absolutely right. And the other is you got to think like a thief and maybe pressure test your own system to see maybe I can try a fraudulent try here. I mean, the food stamp program, SNAP program has done that for years. They used to go shopping and see if they could use their card to buy beer somewhere and, you know, this kind of thing. Yeah, that's right. And I'm glad that you mentioned that because that relates to a resource that is available through Department of Treasury and the CFO Council. They have years ago, after we issued our framework, they issued an anti-fraud playbook And it breaks down all of the components and the leading practices from our framework and provides agencies with this nice set of plays for how you can implement that. And one of them is to think like a fraudster. And it helps, you know, the agencies do that, you know, think like the bad guy so that they can figure out how their systems could be broken. 
I know when I used to go into banks back when people went into banks and big lobbies, I used to figure, how would I rob this place? How would I get out and where would I head if I ever wanted to do that? But I didn't take myself up on that. And (laughs) in your testimony, you actually described a couple of the fraud mechanisms, which weren't all that clever. They just did it. Yeah. And you are right about that. They weren't all that clever. And a lot of that relates to the fact that in benefit fraud, there are two key issues there. You have the eligibility and identity. On identity, are you who you say you are? And on eligibility, are you entitled to the benefit that you say you're entitled to in in the amount? And because self-attestation was accepted as the, the key control in a number of these programs, the mechanisms used were really pretty simple in a lot of cases. It was false statements and attestations. People just straight up lied. <laughs> there was document manipulation. They falsified, altered, or forged documents. There was a, you know, quite a lot of fictitious entities, stolen identities, synthetic identities, shell and shelf companies used to apply for benefits. Some got a little bit more, you know, creative through collusion, use of kickbacks and incentives, and then Often, once the funds were received, they were laundered through through other mechanisms. But the mechanisms were pretty basic. Now, technology, I will admit, it did help scale up some of those simple mechanisms, you know, because people could apply many at a time and then also from anywhere in the world. And then also tips were shared, you know, on the dark web and other chat rooms. So simple mechanisms, but then scaled up through some technologies. Rebecca Shea is Director of Forensic Audits at the Government Accountability Office. We'll post this interview along with a link to the anti-fraud framework at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at How do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, 
so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was 
really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture And what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful? So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out 
certain activities that we would hope would in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.